to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, thanks for joining us today in this episode of Educator Essentials, the podcast where we talk with our members about success stories, best practices, and strategies for faculty, preceptors, and those involved in the education, the pharmacy workforce. My name is Christopher Schriever. I'm a clinical associate professor at University of Illinois. And today we will be chatting with Dr. Angela Slampak-Sindrick from Giesinger Medical Center. She's the PGY2 Critical Care Pharmacy Program Director, a critical care clinical pharmacist, as well as the coordinator for acute pharmacy services for the critical care and emergency medicine. Also joining us is Dr. Brian Hayes, the Clinical Pharmacy Manager for Emergency Medicine, Critical Care, and Neurosciences at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine in the Division of Toxicology at the Harvard School of Medicine in Boston. Today, we will be discussing drug utilization reviews, MUE, research, and CQI projects, the similarities and the differences between these. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, today, for our first question, let's start by reviewing medication use evaluations, MUEs. MUEs are a residency standard requirement for many PGY-1 programs, and thus a common project for residents. What is an MUE, and what are the purpose and value of MUEs for the residents as well as our organization? Brian, do you want to take off and provide your thoughts for this first topic? Sure. Thanks, Chris. And uh, thanks, ASHP, for having me on. Uh, and it's great to be with you, Angela, to, to talk about this topic. So MUEs are, are interesting. In fact, ASHP published a guideline on MUEs a couple of years ago in AGHP, which is a really nice article um, that I'd suggest that folks listening read, because we're not going to go through all of those details, but they really do highlight kind of how to work through an MUE and, and make the most out of it. I like to think of all these different project types that we're going to be talking about today kind of on a continuum. And, and MUE is kind of just a smaller, more focused research in a way. And I think I want to answer your second question first, which is what is the purpose and value to the residents in the organization? I think it allows collaboration and relationship building with pharmacy and non-pharmacy clinicians. We strive to have physicians, nurses, and others um, invested in these projects with our residents and the pharmacists. So that kind of builds that interdisciplinary collaboration. Second, it can be finished in a shorter period of time. So the, the learner generally tends to feel a sense of accomplishment. They kind of can check that box. Uh, sometimes they even have it done halfway through the year and can present their finalized results at the mid-year uh, clinical meeting. Third, it allows for presentation at a hospital committee meeting of something like your PNT group, which is a great exposure for the resident to be able to present that project. So what is it? Uh, it's it's generally an evaluation of the way some medication or medication classes being used in the clinical setting. For example, it could measure how we are using a high cost medication compared to the guideline or policy that we approved with it. It could be based off an existing guideline or a newly created one. So those are just a couple of, of short examples. Excellent. Angela, follow-up thoughts? Absolutely. And thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I echo that this is a tremendous interdisciplinary opportunity. And by design, MUEs are meant to be interdisciplinary. And this is really a chance for our clinical pharmacists to show their vital role on the healthcare team. Who more appropriate than the pharmacists to share their knowledge of how medications are being managed? Are the medications that we have on formulary serving our patients well? Do we need to make a change? Are we seeing the results that we expect? 
are our stewardship guidelines yielding the anticipated benefits that we had sought out to achieve? And also importantly in our current economic climate, are we financially viable? And might we achieve this same aim with a more pharmacoeconomically attractive option? And when a pharmacist can come to the table and say, this is the cost savings that I can present and also the, the better health uh, that I can create for my patient population by looking at the work that I've done, that's really setting up our entire uh, team for success and highlighting the importance of the pharmacist as a key member of that team, which is why ASHP has done such a great job in weaving this into the curriculum of both the PGY-1 and the PGY-2 residency training items. And when you look at it, the PGY-1 criteria really nicely outline the, the basics of how to get that MUV done. So they're going to come in and they're going to use evidence-based principles to develop their criteria. They'll learn a systematic approach to gather that data. They'll analyze it. They'll be assertive in presenting their concerns and then implement changes if they're able. And that PGY-2 takes it even a step further. So what system or hospital level committee will need to be engaged, you know, as Brian mentioned, um, but then also what will those key steps be, be the driver of the change initiative? Will a policy need to be revised? Will an order set need to be synthesized or updated? And to really be that key personnel that takes that project to the next level where that resident really has the opportunity not only to impact the care of one patient before them, but many patients across the system. Thank you for those thoughtful responses. Another common project for residents is Continuous Quality Improvement Projects, or CQI. What are CQI projects, and how are they different from MUEs? Do you have an example, can you share an example, of an MUE and a CQI project that you've completed to help illustrate these differences? Angel, would you like to go first? Sure, thank you. When I think about Continuous Quality Improvement, I think of the C as standing for curious. So we want to be curious about the environment around us and encourage all team members to say, can we do it differently? Can we do it better? Can we do it more efficiently, more effectively? Should we do it at all? So does it align with our hospital's mission, vision, and goals? Or might we be better to reallocate our resources to a different patient care initiative? And it's also really important from a joint commission standpoint and all of the regulatory bodies that help us to make uh, the best choices and, and to do the best that we can for our patients, it's part of our reporting structure to them as well. And so when I think about quality improvement, very much there, it's married to the MUV process, but it doesn't have to be necessarily the full MUV process. So when we think about the quality improvement framework, one of the key pieces that we'll share with our learners is the focus PDCA process as one potential framework where we find a process to be targeted for improvement, we organize our team that knows the process, we clarify current knowledge of the process, we understand causes of process variation, select process improvement, we plan. So we develop a solution and we implement improvements and then we check, we evaluate our results and act um, upon the changes that are needed moving forward. So to kind of highlight a little bit how these are inextricably linked, for example, I could envision as a critical care pharmacist, a quality improvement project where we looked to see if nurses were adherent to the titration parameters that we wrote down for norepinephrine. So we said, we're gonna titrate by this much after this many minutes, and we're gonna monitor our blood pressure at these intervals. Did we do that? That is a quality improvement initiative. And so if we see process variation, then 
Why do we have the, what's the current knowledge of the process of how we titrate a vasopressor? Why are we seeing variation? What might we seek to improve? And then we would try to implement that improvement and see if we got closer to our titration instructions. In an MUE, and one that we actually undertook at our institution, we might say, okay, we're going to retrospectively look at the vasoactive medication norepinephrine. And we're going to assess that titration order, one, to make sure it's complete from a joint commission standpoint. Two, did the nurse follow the titrations? And did we achieve the target blood pressure that we sought for? So was that titration that we as an MUE committee designed effective in achieving the blood pressure that we wanted? And if it was, why? And if it wasn't, where was the process deviation and then what happened? And so you're looking uh, still at a medication utilization evaluation process, but now you're seeking toward the patient care outcome versus simply looking at a process. Thanks, Angela. Brian, additional thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Chris. And Angela, uh, you did a great job summarizing it. A lot of what you wrote down, I actually have in my notes as well. So I, I definitely will not repeat that <laughs> for the audience. But uh, we've kind of merged these two processes, kind of like what I think you're describing at your institution. We've done the same at ours, where an MUE is a big piece of a CQI project, and a lot of our MUEs end up morphing into a full CQI project um, just by the nature of, of what we're looking at. So I had written down one example that we might use in the emergency department where we came up with pathway for treatment of agitation. And one component of that was ketamine and using some different doses of ketamine, both intramuscularly and intravenously. And it was implemented about a year or so ago. And so an example would be that the resident now, and this could be my PGY2 EM resident, or it could be a PGY1 resident too, it, it doesn't really matter. And they might come in and they might be looking at things from the MUE perspective of how often was it used? What was the dose similar to what the pathway recommends? Those types of things. And then the CQI piece of that is now collaboration with our ED quality and safety committee. We're looking at were there any safety events reported about this pathway over the last year? Uh, what side effects might've been documented in the chart after it was given? How often was it successful in controlling agitation without the need for rescue medication? How long did it last? We're looking at all of those things. And then we're gonna bring all that information back and see if we need to make updates to our pathway based on the results of that um, MUE. So that's that's how you merge those things together, just, just like you mentioned with the vasopressor example. Those were excellent illustrations. Our third topic, we've covered MUEs and CQIs. So before discussing research, let's discuss drug use reviews or DURs. What qualifies as a DUR, and how does this differ from MUE and CQI projects? Are there specific elements that we need to think about that should be included in a project for it to be considered a DUR? Brian, you want to take the lead on this? Yeah, I'm actually glad that I got to ask this one first um, because I don't have a great answer for this, and I'm actually interested to see what Angela says here. We've actually pretty much sunset the term drug utilization review at my institution in favor of medication use evaluation because MUE kind of encompasses all of those things that we've talked about in the previous two questions where the drug utilization review is focused on such a finite piece of information that it's not always very useful to us Um especially if we're working with teams outside of pharmacy, they want a lot more information than that. So that way we can come together as a group to make decisions on, is this a valuable medication for us in this particular practice type and making the next steps going forward? Is this financially viable as Angela mentioned earlier? So we've actually, we don't use DUR anymore at my hospital. We, we use MUE as the primary term. Interesting. Angela, you want to take off? 
Yeah, we are very much aligned with the same uh, verbiage that you've just talked about. I like the term sunset. That's very nice. Historically, we had the terminology drug use evaluation for prospective reviews, and we had drug utilization evaluation for retrospective review. In contemporary practice, we know that these MUEs or drug reviews may be prospective, concurrent, they can be retrospective. There are many different study designs. As I think it's an important piece to share with our learners, if you mentioned that ASHP article earlier, and it, it kind of has a nice piece in there that talks about um, DUE, and they are frequently used interchangeably, but in the literature, they differentiate it in that MUE emphasizes improving patient outcomes and quality of life through assessment of clinical outcomes in that interdisciplinary approach, whereas DUE and DUR refer to a more a singular ongoing criteria-based drug or very disease-specific assessment. And so again, in my acute care practice, we really sunset those terms for the most part are using the MUE term. It's good for us to mention it to our students and our residents because I think especially our, our managed care colleagues use that term a little bit more. So in the managed care literature, so AMCP actually has a NICE, which is the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy resource available that talks about DUE, and that's something that's important for their practice, a little different than we think about it in acute or hospital-based pharmacy practice. And they have a stepwise approach where they conduct a drug use evaluation when they're thinking about population health. Um, and so that's a nice place for you know a listener to go and to get information, and they talk about a step wise approach that is very similar to the MUE approach, where they identify or determine optimal use, measure use, evaluate use, intervene, and then evaluate the program. So should there be additional steps or additional pieces involved that orient a prescriber in a particular direction? So if a multiple medications are available, for example, they use the example diabetes, how do we best position a, a provider to choose the most cost-effective and uh, optimal medicine for one of their patients? So that's a term that I think still comes up a lot in managed care, but perhaps not quite so much uh, in acute care practice. Okay, thank you. Moving on to our last topic, the last project type we would like to discuss is uh, research, which is often an um, integral component of residency training. How do you differentiate research from the other types of projects we've already covered? Do you require, or if you do require um, your resident to do a research project in addition to an MUE, any tips to kind of managing both of those at the same time? And, and how do you go about doing it? Angela, you want to start out with this one? Sure. Uh, we do require both in our program, both the MUE as well as a research project. And we emphasize to our resident, this is your chance. This is your chance to really make an impact on patient care practice. And that while we endeavor to do this, timing will be everything. <laughs> and so having that dedicated research timeline to accomplish both your MUE and your research project within one residency year will be an important step to you being successful and plan planning it out in advance will be important. And for every quarter of the residency year, you'll have milestones. The way our program is set up, the MUE and the research project are both uh, set up in the Jan July rather timeframe. 
And I do encourage programs to think about having research and MUE orientation as part of your orientation learning experience description in Farm Academic to say that your residents will get some training about the key steps that they'll need, be it city training for human subjects research, conflict of interest forms, key IRB deadlines, and everything that will be expected of them so that they know in advance how to allocate their time across the year. And with respect to the MUE versus research question and why we explain to our residents that we do both, we've already talked about the really important role of MUE. Now, some of the MUE results will be really exciting for our hospital, but perhaps not so exciting or relevant to those outside of our hospital. Whereas in research, we really want to add to the total body of generalizable knowledge, and that's the purpose of the project. We're seeking knowledge that perhaps is independent of routine care, and we're trying to answer a question or test a hypothesis. We'll have a much more rigid protocol that remains unchanged throughout the duration of the research, and it may or may not benefit the subject right before us, but may benefit future patients. And we really do encourage them as they think about the research project to use the finer criteria. So is your project feasible? So it, can you complete it within the, the residency year? Is it interesting, not only to you, because as a resident, we need to be excited about our project to have the, the fortitude to stick with it through the year. But will it be interesting to the total body of knowledge or to the greater audience? Is it novel? Is it something that we, we already know or can we answer something? Is it ethical and is it relevant? So what project uh, gap or rather, yeah, practice gap may be addressed in the literature as they seek to do this. And then we will set them up with mentors. And so a, a mentor that's part of our pharmacist preceptor base, one of our faculty members that is overseeing their research project and one for their MUE project to help set those clear checkpoints and deliverables that will be needed across the continuum. And wherever possible, please reach for your interdisciplinary colleagues as well. Reach for your nurses that are very involved in quality. Reach for your physicians, your advanced practitioners, in addition to your pharmacist base. That um, multi-professional type of approach can really enhance your research as well as your MUE efforts, as well as to at times offload some of the mentorship responsibilities that your uh, clinical pharmacists and your preceptor base are tasked. Very well stated, Angela. Brian, other follow-up thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Angela. That was great. Um, and you saved me from having to review all of the basics that you that you covered so I can focus on a couple of different points that'll hopefully add to add to the discussion here. So the points I wanted to make are kind of just highlight some of the um the, the external factors that kind of help help move these things forward. So we uh, developed a research committee. So it's one of our pharmacy governance committees within our department. Um, and we have multiple different pharmacists from all of our different divisions that that kind of serve on this research committee. And their whole goal is to be responsible for making sure that the residents' projects, uh, that we have projects for them, that they've been vetted, um, that the preceptors are the appropriate ones to be, to be leading that for the resident and to help them keep up with the deadlines throughout the year. Uh, in fact, we just went past our our period of submitting research projects for the upcoming year. Um, and this committee reviews both research ideas and also MUE ideas. So they kind of, you kind of specify which one you think it would be best for and, and they'll help evaluate that. 
They'll provide feedback to the preceptors. Um, and one thing that we instituted in the last two years was a flipped model. So we're actually having residents now also submitting ideas. Sometimes it's based on the research they're doing right now um, for incoming residents, which has been a really nice addition to that. Angela mentioned the role of preceptors. The only thing I'll add to that is that we find this to be a very valuable learning experience, not only for the resident, but also for the new preceptors. So if you're what is formerly known as the preceptor in training, this is a great opportunity for you to be paired with a preceptor that's done this more than once and learn from them. So it's kind of like the preceptor, preceptor in training that's precepting the resident. You kind of have a multimodal model of precepting there going on, which is great. We also institute a research certificate. So a lot of programs now have teaching certificate programs. We actually started a research certificate program um, allied with some of our institutions that residents can voluntarily uh, choose to take throughout the course of the year. So far, it's been mostly PGY2 residents that have taken up on that opportunity, but it's available to anyone. And then some of the more, the more practical things. I think doing both an MUE and a research project is difficult. I'm, I'm not going to say it's not. However, it's mirrors real life. I think the three of us can all say like we're managing multiple things all at the same time. And by having a few different projects going on, one may be going well, one might not be. Um, that teaches you how to be, uh, how to work collaboratively and, and make sure you're meeting deadlines or potentially extending them if needed. Um, but it kind of gives you a picture of what your life might be like afterward. In addition, it helps the residents determine if research is something they want to be part of their career when they're done, because not every resident that graduates wants to do research. In fact, some of them never want to do it again. <laughs> and that's okay. We don't all need to be researchers. We'll obviously all probably need to do some level of MUE, depending on what we do, but you don't have to do full-blown research and that's totally fine. I mean, this is a way to help them determine that. I guess the last two tips that I have that I've just found successful in my own career is always try to come up with a research question that is publishable. And what I mean by that is when you go into a research project thinking you know what the answer is going to be, there's some negatives to that. The first is that you might bias yourself to results that really aren't there in the way that you thought they would be. And secondly, like if you don't get the result that you want, then that's kind of the end of the project and you just throw it away and close the door. But if you rephrase the question in a way where regardless of which result you get, it's publishable, that is great. Um, so that increases your chance of getting some research publications, but also helping share you know, your knowledge that you gained uh, with the rest of the world, which is great. And then the other one is, I, I we mentioned this earlier, and I think Angela mentioned this too, but this is a, a passion of mine, but I think that all research projects and MUE should be multidisciplinary. So I never work on any research project of mine without at least one physician and potentially one other colleague on it that's non-pharmacy, um, just to continue to build those relationships. Because down the road, they're going to now call you and be like, hey, Brian, I'm working on this research project. Do you want to be involved? And it might literally be you writing one paragraph in the final manuscript and just reviewing the data with them. And that's your role. And now you have authorship on a different publication simply because you went out of your way to choose to include them, who's usually an expert in the area, on a paper that you were writing. So I find building those relationships long term is, is a very good indicator for what you can uh, determine to be success down the road. Outstanding points, Brian. Thank you. We know research requires intentionality in the structure and the execution of the study to be reliable and have a chance of being published. What are the project design fundamentals necessary, regardless of whether conducting an MUE, CQI, DUR, or research project that we've kind of talked about so far? Brian, you want to start us out? 
Sure. I think the research question is obviously the most important of all the things. So, you know, um, Angela mentioned the term curious earlier. I, I like that a lot. I might, I might steal that. <laughs> I'll give you credit though. <laughs> um, that's really good um, in the CQI because I think being curious and the way that I've went about my career so far, and this is advice that I give to the residents that that work with me, is that you know you practice in an environment, particularly if you are um, post residency and you're in like one area primarily, you know you start to see practice patterns. You might see safety event patterns. You might see we're not following national guideline patterns. You might see questions that you're getting continuously from the teams that you work with, and those are all nice places to start for research ideas. Like you don't have to be a genius to come up with research ideas. I'm not one. I just listen to what people are telling me and look for patterns. And that's what has led to a lot of the different questions that I have come up with over the years. And so that's just an easy way. It's, it's low hanging fruit sometimes, but in sometimes it's just hiding in plain sight for you to see, which is great. So the, the question is obviously the most important. And then you have to think about your time frame. You need to think about, is this going to be retrospective or prospective? Largely for residents, it's going to be retrospective and that's okay. Um, we've gotten away with a few prospective over the year, but it's really tough to do in one year. Sometimes I found with PGY2s that are staying on from their first year at the same site, you might be able to get started a little bit early, but um, generally they're retrospective, which is totally fine. And then you're thinking about what the patient population is going to be. You're coming up with your inclusion and exclusion criteria. So you're kind of thinking through like whenever you've given a presentation on a journal club before and you're working through the methodology, those are all the things that you want to start thinking about prior to getting started. In fact, I mentioned that research committee that we have at my at my shop. That's all part of the proposal that you have to submit in order to even get the project evaluated um, to be given to a resident as an option for the next year. And so those are the types of things that we're looking at. Sample size is important. We're going to talk about that, I think, in a couple of questions. It's not an exact science, particularly if the question hasn't been addressed before. But uh, so a lot of folks aim for around 100 or so as a, as a number, which does work in a lot of cases. But uh, coming up with the data collection sheet is obviously also really important. And the one last piece of advice I'll give before tossing the mic over to Angela here is that the data collection sheet is a work in progress. A lot of us are not using Excel sheets anymore. We're using things like REDCap or other programs that help store that data. But a lot of times you don't know exactly what you need to know until you get into the first chart. So you can kind of have your draft form. Um, but we always recommend that the residents do a couple of cases to number one, find out how long it's going to take them per patient. Obviously, they'll get better as they do more over time. But to really like, you don't want to be 75 patients in and realize that we forgot to look for the blood pressure. You want to try and identify that in your first five patients so you're not going back. So those are really important things to kind of tweak your data collection sheet early uh, with a couple of case examples. Angela, your thoughts? Absolutely. Uh, Brian, you really covered this topic uh, phenomenally. Uh, very true. And I, I agree with all of those points. And uh, one of the things that you can even consider for your learners is that that data collection piece can be an opportunity for layered learning. And so if you have a PGY2 learner that's endeavoring to complete multiple projects, perhaps they can mentor a PGY1 or they can mentor an API student, so an advanced pharmacy practice learner, or even medical students that may be at your site that have a desire to learn more about your discipline and to be part of the research or quality improvement process, uh, bring them in. 
teach them how to collect that data, and then involve them in the synthesis of your manuscript or presentation of your results so that we can also uh, speak to those uh, other aspects of the residency curriculum that involve the, the resident as educator. And so this is a great opportunity for that in addition to the layered learning opportunities with those new preceptors as well as seasoned preceptors. And I'll also just echo in terms of design fundamentals that that residency research committee is really important. And so much like Brian described, we, we do a very similar process. And so the residency research committee vets those project designs up front and then also keeps the learner on track with their reporting checkpoints. Perhaps you're in a larger facility and you can do that residency research committee approach. And if you are a multi-system site, please consider having that across all of the hospitals within your system so that everyone from a pharmacy standpoint is involved in knowing what are all of the research aspects that are going on across your organizations. And there's great opportunity for multi-platform study design, synergy across, and even inter-hospital precepting opportunities because they are all part of your health system. If you're a smaller community hospital and perhaps you're just thinking about this concept of a residency research committee, maybe initially you think about this as a subcommittee of your RAC or your residency advisory committee, and you're going to have a residency research committee you know, that reports up underneath of that, and you'll have a research chair. And so they will uh, help the RPD in keeping the projects on, uh, ongoing and also setting up some of those meetings for routine, routine review of the projects. And one of the things you can think about in terms of keeping those projects on track is requiring your resident to present those key findings at your RAC or at your RRC committee meetings as you go across the year. So at the end of quarter one, they should be able to share with you their study design, their IRB materials, and frankly, the first few slides of their regional residency conference presentation because they know their research question, their background, and their methods. They won't have any results, but no better time to put those few slides together because they've just thought about everything. And then around the second quarter of the year, as we are approaching the mid-year clinical meeting time, we should have some preliminary data that we can begin to share third quarter of the year moves into here are my results and what am I going to do about it? And then we can get the entire faculty's input on what they thought was interesting, what might be great pieces to include in a manuscript discussion, and then to really bring the team in on how to, to enact some process change and to finalize that manuscript in quarter four. Excellent. Thank you. Very good points. We've discussed a number of things so far, and we're kind of getting into our sunset of this podcast. I think I'm going to use that word as well, as long with curious. I found two new words thrown in my vocabulary. So we've discussed the basic principles, defining roles, responsibilities, clear objectives, and outcomes. And Brian kind of alluded to this earlier. So when we're thinking about doing that MUE, how do we determine our sample size? Angela, would you like to go first? Absolutely. As Brian said, this is at times a little more perhaps art than science, and some learners may say 100 patients is my aim and that's where I'll be. Uh, so this will be when we as preceptors are called to give um, some wisdom about designing a high quality research project. And this is the time where we ask them to remember all of the excellent literature evaluation skills that they have hopefully garnered in the School of Pharmacy that they came to us from. And for those that perhaps um, need a little assistance, we can supplant some of those skills and link them to our resource librarians or other individuals at your site. Everyone uh, probably has that great resource of that one person that you know um, has a, a great command of literature evaluation uh, if they need a little help. 
And we'll ask them to think about some key questions. Has your question been previously studied? If so, how many patients were in that study? Has an analogous question been studied? How many patients were there? If you're looking at the, uh, the use of a specific medication, how many patients in your hospital receive that medication annually? If it's three and they've only been using it for seven years, you may not have a very large N for your sample. If there are 20,000 patients across your healthcare system that are using, let's say, metformin, then perhaps we need to think about a, a refining our research question and looking at a specific subset of the patient population. So what is available to you? And if it is within your institution, uh, some institutions have what's called a prep to research form. If you don't have one, you can consider it. And it basically takes those key fundamentals that we talked about and uh, asks your organization to consider giving you sort of a very preliminary report of, hey, could you run a report for me and just let me know how many patients got angiotensin to within our three hospitals in the last year? So that I know, is it reasonable for me to study angiotensin 2 and its outcomes? Um, if I come back with that report and I get zero, then I perhaps have to go back to the drawing board. Brian, additional thoughts? I actually don't have many additional thoughts. I'm actually really glad Angela got chosen to do that question. <laughs> I really don't have anything else to add. The only thing that I was going to say really was about the time frame, uh, which Angela covered. And, and that is that sometimes you're dictated by this has only been in existence for X amount of time or it would add, it, add it to formulary an X year. Um, so you're kind of limited by that. I guess the the caveat that I'll throw in here now, which is something that we've done, is a lot of the hospitals now, most hospitals are part of systems. And so you may actually have access to system level data that you didn't know about. And obviously that probably wouldn't be appropriate for a smaller MUE, but it could be for a research project. And the reason I bring that up is because particularly if it is a type of project where the um, intervention has a low number of patients, you can increase your sample size significantly. You run into less IRB issues because it's part of the same system. You can collaborate with other institutions in your system, which is great, like we talked about earlier. And finally, you know, you may be the academic center training residents, but it'd be great if you could have some community patients and other types of patients in your data set. Um, and that way, when you publish it, it is a little bit more generalizable than just the urban academic center, blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, I think that those things might might help you determine sample size or increase your sample size if you think yours is going to be too small. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. It's kind of a nice segue. You had that three-letter acronym IRB in your discussion, and we know that that gives residents and preceptors a little bit of confusion and anxiety. Doing these projects, when do we want to think about getting the IRB approval? When, when should that be on our radar? And along with the research in the MUE project proposal, when, when, do, you th when do you guys have that on, your, on the radar? When do you have it on the radar and you're thinking about doing it? Brian, you want to start us out? Sure. So we we both mentioned this the research committee idea. So if you don't have that as part of your hospital program right now, I I would highly recommend it. And if you if you're looking for advice on on what that might look like, I'm happy to share documents. I'm sure Angela would as well to kind of show you what that structure is like. The reason it's important is from say May through August, they're they're really active. They're reviewing. Uh, at the end of the academic year, they're reviewing and getting ready for the incoming class by having all the project ideas ready so that as soon as the new residents are here and are getting oriented, they can start to choose their projects. And then they are really kind of on top of the residents for the next month and a half or so as they choose their topic and get all that initial information 
going basically. And so we usually have sort of a soft, a kind of a medium soft hard deadline of the end of August to have our IRBs submitted projects. I, I don't think IRBs only cause anxiety for residents. I think they also cause them for preceptors. <laughs> Over time, you generally get a sense of how your IRB operates in terms of how long might it take to do a review on a given type of project. Ours is generally pretty quick uh, at, at my hospital now. Um, but the other piece is IRBs don't always know how to handle pharmacy projects that are not the standard type of research question. So for the bigger research projects, it's usually not a problem. They may review it and say, nope, this is exempt, or they may review it and approve it, or they may review it and ask you to make some changes and then go give you a decision. But for the MUEs, we found that a lot of them, or the CQIs particularly, they, they don't always know what to do with those. And so they'll say, we don't need to review this. Like, okay, well, that actually isn't helpful for us um, because when you want to submit to a journal, they want to know, has this been reviewed by an IRB? And what they, they don't want to just say like the IRB passed on it. They want to know, did the IRB review this and approve it? Or did they review it and determine for it to be exempt? But then the IRB is not always willing to make that statement because they don't really know how to how to uh, how to evaluate it themselves and so that's the conundrum that we've sort of run into multiple times over the past years um, at, at my hospital and so we generally tend to try to frame our muEs in a cqi way as long as we don't think there will be true research being done and that way we know that it can be exempted by our IRB and we can kind of they, they've given us they've given us what they think is a very clear a document of what uh, the checklist is but it doesn't align with what we do so I, honestly I think for the future of our profession one thing we should probably all get together and do maybe as a ashP group is to uh, get some of those checklists from IRBs and come up with a standard way for addressing them um that maybe we can make a change there because I think it probably affects a lot of institutions. I think you're absolutely right, Brian. Uh, those are great points. Angela. I'm glad you brought that up, Brian. So that was something that we faced as well with our research projects. They follow the standard flow of the IRB. They convene a subset or whole IRB, depending on the depth of the research. Whereas with MUEs, which for our MUE process for our residents, they're always retrospective in nature. And they really are trying to answer questions some of them that involve patient care outcomes, but it's not a full-blown research project. And so we, given the fact that we want to take the results outside the system and publish these as abstracts and posters at the ASHP mid-year clinical meeting and at other associated meetings, we actually sat down with our IRB chairman and explained everything that you just said. This is what an MUE is. Everything we've talked about on the podcast today <laughs> This is how pharmacy as a profession and our accrediting bodies have carved out this particular type of quality improvement endeavor that also has uh, patient focus, patient outcomes, and this is what it looks like. And for our MUE committee, which is a subcommittee of our pharmacy and therapeutics committee, uh, there's a standard template if you're going to propose that you're going to do a medication utilization evaluation that looks much like a research um, submission to the IRB. It goes into your background, your methods, your why, who will be involved, uh, who will have access to the data and when, and what's your study timeframe. And so through those conversations with our IRB chairman across the system, we were able to get a specific item called MUE which is one of the checkpoints on the IRB application. So you can actually mark your research as an MUE. 
And then that helps to facilitate expedited review of the project because they are 99.9% .9 of the times exempt. But then we do have that piece of paper that says this is not research in the classical definition. And IRB has reviewed this and, you know, it's exempt. And then you have that should you want to, let's say, take it as a platform presentation to the Society of Critical Care Medicine Congress meeting. Um, so that's something that has been very helpful to us and has really expedited the review and made life a lot easier for our preceptors, the residents and the IRB who's getting lots of anxious emails from our residents uh, wanting to make sure that their projects were going to come to fruition. Yeah, great points. Yes. Outstanding points, as how the whole podcast has went so far. You guys have had some really great insight on a lot of the topics we've been discussing. So kind of uh, summing this all up, everything that we've talked about, final words of advice, um, words of caution, anything else we'd like to get out to the uh, residents of the programs about what they can uh, for things that are lying in the future? I think for me, I always like to think about the end goal before starting. Um, you, you don't always know what your question, what the answer to your question is going to be. That's why we're doing the research in the first place. Um, but always think about what are, what might be the next steps. Like if, uh, if, if X happens, are we going to change a protocol? Or if Y happens, will that be publishable? And that way you're kind of always thinking about what's the real completion? Because the completion isn't when you finish the project analysis. It's what are you going to do with that data later? And so I, I you know, sometimes you can get to the end and be like, oh, good, I'm done. But you're not you're not done. That's probably the halfway point sometimes, especially with some of the I don't know if you 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 both probably operate in similar systems where you may have to present to seven different committees to get the next steps approved. So it, it's it's just getting started once you've completed the research. So think about that. Second is, is what I'm doing potentially generalizable to other institutions? Because um, that's what I'm really thinking about. Is this going to be worthy of of pursuing publication. As I mentioned earlier, I just, I've always sworn by this, but always try to come up with research questions that could be publishable irrespective of which result happens um, with your investigation. And then uh, the last thing is just now that we're part of hospital systems, we've found that utilizing system level data or multiple institutions within the system um, has helped increase our sample sizes with not too much extra effort um, because of the reporting that we now have available to us, um, but it also makes it more generalizable um, to other systems across the country. Angela? Very wise words, Brian. I'm taking notes for sure. I'll add to that that for the residents, the preceptors, the students that are endeavoring to complete these uh, MUEs, research projects, it's time to get excited about your project. The time is right now. And the more excited you are and dedicated you are to this project, the more of an enjoyable experience that you'll have and the more you'll get out of it. Uh, think of this as your opportunity. It really is. It's an opportunity to make an impact on the patients that you care for every day and all of the patients that your hospital is going to care for that come after you. And I know it's an investment of your time. It is. And it may not be as appealing as some of your direct patient care activities that are everything that you live and breathe. However, it really is important and it will be part of your practice in some capacity moving forward. And it may open doors for you that you could have never imagined just by engaging in this process. Remember to reach out for guidance when you need it. Reach out to your preceptors, to your research team. You can reach out to Brian and I if you have a question. 
And remember that you are making a difference. You're making a difference today and you're making a difference for your patients for there today and tomorrow. So you, you are for sure doing great things for our profession. We wish you the best of luck and we hope that you have a really great experience as you begin your projects. Yeah, I echo that. Chris, you mentioned cautions also. I definitely don't want to end this on a down note. So I'm going to have Angela bring us back up again after I mention this. But I just want to say, you know, not everything in every hospital is perfect. And I, I think we know that. And you you may end up paired with a with a preceptor that's really taking this research really seriously. That may be their own personal research that they're invested in and it's not going the way that you planned and things are getting frustrated. So just kind of always have mentors around that could be your your RPD, it could be an advisor, it could be just another colleague, it could be the preceptor themselves, but open communication is super important when you're doing these projects. There are multiple steps, multiple steps where things could go wrong. Um, there are multiple parties involved. So I, I know we always stress communication, but over communicating with this kind of stuff, I think is crucially important to success. So if you're not going to meet a deadline or if you just have a question, like I never get mad with more emails about the research project because I would rather you send them to me as they come up as opposed to waiting for a month because you're only with us for 12 months potentially. And if, if a month or two months goes by, that's almost a quarter of your of your residency year. And, and now we might be behind the eight ball and it's going to be tougher to catch up with all your other responsibilities. So um, conflict may happen. Hopefully it won't, but you can avoid that as much as possible by over communicating and showing your excitement like Angela was talking about earlier. Great points, Brian. Those are really, really important things to consider. And for anyone that's endeavoring to complete a project of any of the types that we talked about, yes, it's an important way to learn the skills that are required to complete the project, so to do the work. A big part of those skills are going to be skills that are going to help you in your clinical practice as you are an educator and as a leader. So conflict resolution, time management, and emotional intelligence. And so you may have many opportunities to practice your emotional intelligence as you relate to the different stakeholders that are part of your team, as you attempt to navigate perhaps for the first time the waters of the uh, interdisciplinary nature of moving some of these things forward, or if you're part of a big system, how to get buy-in from five different hospitals that practice perhaps differently. See those opportunities as opportunities. Those are those formative moments where you can say, when was a time when I was required to bring a group to consensus and how did I do that? This will be your chance. And so think about those opportunities, take them um, as learning experiences and they will be formative experiences for you as you grow. And it's really about growth at the end of the day. So keep that growth mindset, keep your chin up. Uh, and we look forward to a lot of the exciting publications that you're hopefully gonna share with us. That's a great conversation, great insight, both Brian and Angela. I think you brought uh, quite a bit of clarity to some topics that are often considered quite confusing for residents and preceptors alike. So that's all the time we have today. And again, I would like to thank Drs. Hayes and Slampak-Sendrick for joining us today to discuss the difference between research, DUR, CQI, and MUEs, and when the IRB is needed. If you haven't, I encourage you to check out ASHP's Educator Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and exchange ideas with your peers on the ASHP Education Connect community. 
Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Educator Essentials. And we hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. And be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast or your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.